Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic. Last time, we filled in the gaps and moved pieces around in preparation for the big finale. Now, in episode 20, wow, 20, I guess that is a milestone number, huh? We uh, we largely keep doing that, but we finally get to see how Revan got his name and his mask and some tricky hyperspace physics. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in Legends. So we are picking up with the Knights of the Old Republic comic uh, series Masks, written by John Jackson Miller, 2009, and it's a one-issue interlude, that kind of series, the one-issue interlude kind. Masks is a single issue that finally reveals the origin of both Revan's name and his trademark mask. Miller said from the beginning of the series that he knew how he wanted to fully merge Revan and the Revanchist as one character, and he intended to use the Battle of Cathar. The genocide, however, first described by companion character Johanni in Knights of the Old Republic, was said to take place more than a decade before the events of the video game. This left the team with an issue that they resolved in a fairly clever fashion, as we will describe below. We'll also get a little more background on Jariel and find out why she wasn't really a slaver, but more of an enslaved teenage protector for child slaves trying to keep them from fates worse than death. It's pretty fucked up. Our old characters are Zane, Jariel, Malik... Vruk Lamar, the Revanchist, Griff, and LB. We're getting some new characters. Ferro, a Cathar Jedi who joined the Revanchist movement early on and was present for their defeat and capture at Surja, as well as their rescue from Flashpoint Station. He was tortured at the hands of a demigol like Malak, and he shows up to relay the story of how the Jedi became more fully involved in the Mandalorian Wars. There's Captain Pete. Teleto, a human member of the Republic, Teleto serves as the primary liaison between the Revanchist Jedi and the Republic fleet once the Jedi enter the war. The character's likeness and name are based on a fan who won a contest by donating the most money to the Seattle Children's Hospital. Teleto is the winner's surname, spelled backwards, and is, as far as we know, the only Pete in Star Wars. And Revan... You know and love you know him, you love him, you've played as him at least five times. Well he showed up a couple of times in the Knights of the Old Republic comics before, it was always with his face obscured from view behind his Jedi hood. He has spent most of the comics in the shadows, allowing his old friend Malik to work with Zane, while the Revanchist and his adherents have agitated for greater Jedi involvement in the Mandalorian Wars from behind the scenes. Now, finally, we see the origin of the most famous and beloved expanded universe star wars character revan we will of course talk so much more about revan later old location is a cathar via flashback and our new location will be war tandal a planet with rich jungles and a few smaller cities the gang uses it as a rest stop while recovering from the events of dueling ambitions and our timeline we are in 3963 bby and 3973 via flashback all right our story, Jeriel is once again running from her past. She rides an exotic beast through the jungles of Wartandel, attempting to escape the crew of the Hot Prospect. She believes they will cast her out and that they hate her since learning she was a slaver, but Zane just seems confused. After a short, after a short chase, Jeriel's uh, beast stumbles and she's thrown to the ground. As Carrot catches up, she's finally forced to tell the truth about... Uh, her history with the crucible. And it's pretty clear to see 
why she never wanted to talk about her past. As a child, she was kidnapped from her home by crucible slave traders and, along with many other children, was forced to fight other slave kids and small aliens in the fighting pens. Uh, the woman who trained Jarrell's group of slave children to fight was a brutal taskmaster. But as she grew, Jarrell realized she was simply an older slave uh, who had survived long enough. When Jarrell was a teenager, she challenged the trainer and won, but... After learning the Crucible's true nature, she chose to protect the child fighters under her care the only way she knew how, by making them better fighters. If this sounds counterintuitive, just wait until you hear what happens to the bad fighters. Slave children who were successful in the Crucible's fighting pits were sold to mercenary groups, gladiatorial rings in the Outer Rim, or the duelist, or as duelists to the franchise. The unsuccessful slave children face fates far worse. They were sold off to private corporations to perform jobs with 100% death rates, be the victims of horrific live medical experimentation, or become sexual slaves. Jariel trained the fighters until she couldn't take it anymore and risked her life to escape the crucible. She would eventually be rescued by Camper, and the two ended up on Taurus together. So the reveal that Jariel was a slaver, while technically true, comes with some rather large caveats. Mainly, you know, that there are stark moral and ethical differences between, say, deciding to become involved in the slave trade for fun and profit of your own free will, and, let's say, being a child slave who survives long enough to fight and take the slave fighting trainer job as a teenager to try and make life a little better for your fellow child slaves so they aren't sold as medical experiments or sex slaves. I guess both are still slavers, but Jaria's far less of a slaver than, say, Han Solo, who, you know, willingly joined the Empire. Not to say Han was bad. Well, you know, kind of is because that's his whole character arc. But you get the point. Early in their journeys, Jariel hoped and thought that no one would recognize her tattoos, but that's obviously not the case. Zane wants to help Jariel fight the Crucible and take them down for good, but she just wants to run, so the two split up. Jariel travels back to the hot prospect only to find Malik, who had come to the planet looking for her. Zane, meanwhile traveled into War Tardell's capital city looking for supplies, but instead found his friend, Pharaoh, a Kethar Jedi, with a Republic escort, Captain Pete Taloto. Carrick is worried that Pharaoh has been arrested since the Jedi and Republic aren't working together, but Pharaoh has some shocking and welcome news. The Jedi have finally joined the Republic in the war against the Mandalorians, and it's all thanks to the Revanchist. Finally... After nearly a full year at war with the Republic and 12 more terrorizing the Outer Rim systems, the Jedi were dragged into war after the revanchist Jedi uncovered evidence the Jedi Council couldn't ignore. The evidence was buried on the remote Outer Rim world of Cathar, but it took a decade to uncover. Pharaoh says that he made a trip to visit Cathar, the homeworld of his people, about 10 years earlier and noticed some troubling things. The world was, as far as he could tell, totally uninhabited by the Cathar people, and they appeared to have just disappeared, up and vanished. Uh, concerned, Pharaoh questioned the Republic about the disappearance of his people, but was told that it was likely the result of a mass migration due to disease. Uh, the Cathar Jedi doubted these claims, but the Cathar, but with the Cathar so far outside Republic space, it was a moot point. Uh, during his sub subsequent travels as a Jedi, Pharaoh heard fragmented stories of Mandalorian involvement in the Cathar disappearance from members of his species scattered throughout the galaxy. After the Revanchist Jedi formed, Pharaoh voiced his concern to the Revanchist leader, and the entire movement decided the uh, decided to visit the world in hopes of finding clues of a Mandalorian atrocity and forcing the Jedi Council to get involved. 
The Revengeous Jedi arrived on Cathar and were rejoined by Malak, arriving directly from Coruscant after his limited involvement in Vindication. Revengeous Jedi could feel the same, that some evidence was present, waiting to be found on Cathar, but all their searches came up empty. What's worse, Master Vruklamar and a group of Jedi Knights and Masters loyal to the High Council journeyed to the Outer Rim world in order to confront the Revengeous Jedi and demand they disband. The Council was riding high after the defeat of the Covenant and aimed to use their victory to stamp out another growing center of power within their order. Time was not on the side of the Revengeous Jedi. They were outnumbered and circled and being told to give up their dogged, hawkish pursuit of war with the Mandalorians. Then, just as all hope looked lost, the Revengeous leader looked down and noticed a nondescript Mandalorian mask sticking out of the ground. None of the Jedi were prepared for what happened next, though. When the mask was in earth and lifted, all of the assembling, assembled Jedi experienced a shared forth, force vision showing them the sad fate of the Cathar. At once, the Jedi were met by thousands of Cathar running for their lives with nothing but children clutched in their arms. The Jedi ignited their lightsabers in defense, but soon realized they were witnessing an event long in the past. Cassius Fett and his Mandalorian Neo-Crusaders gave chase on jetpacks, indiscriminately killing the group from on high when the remaining Cathar were finally pushed onto a beach. Then, a Mandalorian fighter threw herself between Fett and his prey, pleading that they be allowed to survive as beaten enemies of the Mandalorians. The adults could be given a chance to take up the Mandalorian customs and the children indoctrinated as was standard operating procedure. Cassius Fett wished to slaughter the Cathar, the Cathar on purpose, however, because he remembered the supposed slight that Silvar gave to Exar Kun and the Mandalorians in the Great Sith War, and he hated them for it. Fett proclaimed that if this female Mandalorian would stand with the Cathar, then she would die with the Cathar too. At that, orbiting ships unleashed their cannons on the beach, killing thousands of Cathar and one Mandalorian woman. The Mandalorian genocide of the Cathar people was complete. Once the shared force vision was over, all present were shaken, but the the revengeous leader was also resolved to defeat the Mandalorians. Raising his purple-bladed lightsaber aloft, he donned the Mandalorian mask and proclaimed that, henceforth, he would be known as Revan. The outspoken Jedi proclaimed he wouldn't remove his mask or go by any other name until the Mandalorians were defeated. Although final Mandalorian defeat was still more than two years off, however, Revenge's investigation on Cathar had profound effects on the galaxy. The Jedi High Council, which had been so keen to snuff out another internal movement so soon after defeating the Covenant, was forced to sanction Jedi involvement in the Mandalorian Wars. The Council's hand was forced. The Jedi ignored the genocide of more than 90% of all Cathar in the, Jedi, in the galaxy. Then what use are they? A recurring question when Jedi overlook deep crimes. A <laughs> <laughs> yeah. little bit, a little bit. The Council did publicly condemn Revan's actions in the wider Jedi involvement in another war, but even some masters left the High Council to fight. Revan, in his infinite scheming, decided to label all Jedi fighting alongside the Republic as part of the Mercy Corps, an idea originally used during the Great Sith War. In the Mercy Corps, Jedi were deputized as Republic officers and ostensibly served as healers aboard Republic vessels, but were largely used as battlefield leaders. Some Jedi even took the title General, including Revan, Malak, and Mitra Surak. As the flashback ends, we see that Malak and Pharaoh were telling the same story to different audiences simultaneously. 
With Malik regaling Jariel Griffin Slisk by a campfire, Malik concludes by saying that he used his Republic escort and Chip to find Jariel and bring her back to fight the Mandalorians. Jariel, already upset about having to relive much of her tortured past, is noticeably reluctant. Then Griff let it slip that she exhibited some newly found force powers. Malik is thrilled to hear it and ready to train her at once. Jariel is even more uncomfortable now, and with Roland exiting the hot prospect, things are about to get worse. Malik, to his credit, attempted to find some common ground with Roland, but the questioner was having none of it. The Mandalorian punched the Jedi in the face, and the two began a quick fight. Roland used his jetpack to get some space and the high ground, but was tackled by Malik's force jump, and the two tangled weaponless on the ground. Malik, seeing a chance to end the fight, strangled Roland while placing his helmet in <laughs> inside the campfire. Luckily for all involved, Zane, Pharaoh, and Pete arrive back at the ship just in time to break up the fight. Jarael has been made even more uncomfortable by all of this and really just needs time to sort all of all of this out as a means of dispersing and shocking the group and keeping Jariel away from the controlling Malik. Zane immediately kissed the Arcanian offshoot, uh, you know, kind of like how she did to buy some time uh, back on the Arcanian legacy. So many episodes ago, he claims the couple recently got together and says they will go wherever Jariel wants or needs to go. While while Malik and Pharaoh retreat back to their Republic cruiser, Zane explains that the kiss was meant to buy Jarrell time to make her next decision, but she already knew that. Jarrell thanks Zane for keeping her away from Malik, whose demeanor had grown increasingly hostile and erratic over the past year, and agreed to tell him more about her past. Just as Jarrell and the gang had agreed to take down the Covenant and clear Zane's good name once before, so too will Zane and the gang agree to take down the Crucible, free its slaves, and get Jarrell free get Jariel clear of any repercussions. While their hammerhead corvette ascends to orbit above Wartandel, a visibly angered Malik looks on at Zane and Jariel and then turns away in disgust, intent on winning the war. Our story picks up with Knights of the Old Republic comic The Reaping by John Jackson Miller, which is a two-issue arc released in 2009. We have Zane, Jariel, Griff, Slisk, and Roland as returning characters, and new characters include Cohen, a Nazar slave owned by the Sungazer Cooperative has successfully completed five dives to the asteroid below for precious crystals, which is the record. Being sold as a slave to Sungazer is considered a death sentence, with most slaves not surviving their first asteroid dive. Nazar are humanoid bipedal horses with fingers and opposable thumbs. Our old friend Koltuk was a Nazar. Saraya Budan is a female Kurivar who led the Sungazer co-op and purchased slaves directly from the Crucible. She was ruthless and considered her slaves expendable business necessities. Kurivar are a humanoid species with cranial ridges and striations leading to a horn that protrudes from the crown of their heads. The ridges make their faces look like a ruffles potato chip. Dace Goliard is a disgraced former Republic Navy officer who was to be court-martialed but escaped and eventually took up work with the Crucible. Flies a large capital-class ship called the Gladiator that is covered in gold plating. Barnjar is a Sanyasin male who served as Magister Protector of the Crucible. His role was primarily concerned with handling any security matter the Crucible has. Sanyasin are tall humanoid reptiles that also have ape-like faces. 
Listen, don't ask. They were originally created for one of the made-for-TV Ewok movies. Just going to have to go with it. We will return to Coruscant and their new locations are two unknown ones, as well as the Kornacht Cluster, an extremely dense cluster of stars in the core world, but on the very edge of the deep core. The cluster was made up of some 2,000 stars and 20,000 worlds, but only about six had sentient life forms. None of that matters because it all takes place in the space station and comets in and around the asteroid field. We are in the year 3963 before Battle Yavin and an unknown time in the past during a brief flashback to Jariel's life on an unknown world. Our story picks up. Comet mining is dangerous. Apparently. I I wrote that. that like, what is this fucking Armageddon? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <sighs> After seeing, after seeing the movie Armageddon, we can all agree that comet mining is very dangerous. However, it's even worse for the slaves mining comets for the Sungrazer Cooperative. Operating out of the Kornok Cluster in the Core World, Sungrazer would drop slaves called Dust Divers from its space station to the comets below and allow the low gravity to slow their fall before the slaves were forced to mine rare and valuable cr- crystals called Thoralide. Sounds dangerous enough on its own, but the dust is also highly volatile and combusts if it's heated to a high enough temperature or is hit by another object at high speed. When the sun comes out, the explosions start and the divers are required to send up any crystals they find before they will be rescued. Despite all of these problems, the Sungrazer leader, Saraya Boudin, keeps sending new crews of slaves to their deaths because the value of of the Thorlite collected far outweighs the cost of buying new slaves from the Crucible. Quan, Quan, I have no idea, the longest serving dust diver, having survived five trips, begs Boudin to reconsider given the volatility of the asteroid field and comets, but she doesn't care for his complaints or his life. It's just business to the core of our leader, but she's about to learn the same lesson the hard way. Zane and Jariel undertake a risky mission without the rest of the group's knowledge or approval. Jariel hasn't told the rest of the group about her past and has sworn Zane to secrecy as well. So their strikes against the Crucible are covert for now. Knowing that this place purchased slaves from the Crucible, Jariel chose this as, the, as another target to disrupt Crucible operations, but they may have gotten some key intel wrong. Zane is outfitted with some blue flames of the Crucible on his face as well, and the duo easily pass for Crucible agents with Jariel knowing enough of the lingo to make it just convincing enough. The Arcadian offshoot talks circles around Budan, claiming that the Crucible is there to mine and sell the crystals themselves due to bigger problems of their own. The hot prospect is, after all, a gem mining vessel with a large drill in the front, and Budan appears unfazed by a Crucible break in protocol so much as her own loss of profits. She's reminded that the Crucible's problems are far above her pay grade and put in her place. It's just business, remember? Budan lets them pass and tells her group that this appears to be a legit operation and sends the rest of the slaves below to assist. Zane calms Griff and lets them know that they are ready for pickup. Griff believes that they are picking up expensive crystals that they have already harvested and begins moving the hot prospect into position. Zane is troubled by lying to his oldest friend, but Jarile reminds him that they can strike another blow to the Crucible by rescuing a few slaves and disrupting their business in another part of the galaxy. This is all very noble and good, and the plan is pretty solid, except for the whole internal dishonesty that's obviously going to fuck up your plan thing. But there's also one 
really obvious flaw with relying on Jarile's info about crucible operations. It's really, really outdated. We know that Jarile had a pass with the crucible, but she also had a pass with this specific space station because this is where she learned the truth about the company's slaving business. <clears throat> When she won the right to become a trainer, Jarile was also taken on real missions intended to show the trainers what the Crucible was really like. Apparently, and perhaps not surprisingly, the slaves were lied to as young children and told unsuccessful child fighters were freed. Uh, The Crucible, the the kids were told, was simply looking for the best fighters. So when they got promoted, they they found out the truth and their options were either death as a slave or working with the truth. Uh, One of those missions sent Jarael to the same uh, Sungrazer co-op station in the Kurnak cluster. After finding out the truth about the crucible, Jarael began protecting the kids she trained and eventually escaped. When she visited the station all those years ago, it held eight slaves and they just assumed it was the same amount now. You know what they say about assuming, right? Hey, the rest of the crew isn't aware that they are working against the Crucible yet, so Zane and Jariel reason that they could easily explain away rescuing eight slaves to Griff and the rest of the hot prospect. To rescue the slaves, they split up, Jariel to find the shuttle, and Zane below to free the expected eight slaves. Taking Lyft down, however, Zane speaks with Khan and hears about the tragic life that dust divers face. Carrick, having no poker face, almost breaks down and then is then floored when he finds out there aren't eight slaves working for the Sangreaser co-op. There are 80. Even if Jario's memory was spot on and there were only eight slaves before, it doesn't matter at all since demand for the expensive deadly comet crystals has skyrocketed. Just as Zane is making one shocking discovery below, Jario found one on the station too. Boudin and the Sungrazers found that no Crucible agents were dispatched to the Kordnok cluster and have totally locked down the station, including all the shuttles and the hot prospect. It's just as well, though, because Zane Radios and the duo realize a huge change of plans is required. They put on spacesuits and escape pursuing guards by jumping out into the void of space and towards the slaves working on the comet below. On the unstable comet, Jariel instinctively uses her newfound grasp of the Force to save Zane after sensing an incoming asteroid, pushing him out of its path. The guards pursue, but are no match for Zane's lightsaber and Jariel's quick blaster work. Momentarily free of interference, Zane approaches Khan and destroys the sensor beacon used by the Sungrazers to track their slaves. Jariel calls Griff and the plan changes on the fly, but there's still a few small problems to address. First small problem. 82 beings are stranded without jetpacks on a low-gravity comet whipping through space at thousands of kilometers per hour. Second small problem. Quone says even if they had a ship, the comet is so unstable with dust and crystals that the heat of the nearby sun could cause it to explode before the ship could get there. However, the Nazar underestimated the dollar signs in Griff's eyes, and that ship was waiting at the ready. As the hot prospect arrives, Slisk fires up the main centrifuge, which powers the onboard gym refinery and the large frontal drill. The Trandoshan then turns around, d- then turns the ship around and begins mining the comet for crystals using the large drill. But Griff knows something is off when he sees they are taking on passengers, not cargo. 
Griffin Zane argue, but Carrick says they can get enough crystal from the comet mining to make a profit and demands the doors be open to free the slaves. Partners, remember? Uh, Zane uses the force to move the slaves from the comet to the hot prospect and is doing a really good job of levitating 80 beings through the vacuum of space before the third and final problem shows up. It's nothing big, really. It's just that when Boudin called the Crucible to check on Jeriel and Zane's cover story, they decided to send some hired goons to take care of the imposters personally. Unfortunately for Zane's gang, the hired goons chose that exact moment to drop out of hyperspace above them. The Gladiator, a capital-class ship, easily five times larger than the Hot Prospect, and layered in gold plating, dispatched dozen, dozens of Skyreaper drones to catch all the slaves. The drones, called Screepers by the Crucible and slaves alike, have red tentacles that wrap their prey up too tightly to move until they are retrieved. Aboard the Gladiator, a, the gladiator, a disheveled man named Dace Galliard, captains the ship and readies to collect the 80 slaves and a few new ones. In a flashback to an unknown year and an unknown world, we see Sky Reaper drones descend upon the planet and a terrified young child runs away in horror. As she cries and stumbles, she sees a shadow ahead and calls out, hoping it's Master Warwick, whoever that is. Unfortunately, it is not. The human, dressed in ill-fitting Republic attire, introduces himself as Dace Gulliard and tells the Arcanian offshoot child not to fear. The girl introduces herself as Edessa, and Gulliard says that the drones will stop searching now that he found her. Back in the present, Jario realizes that the same crusty, disgraced former Republic Navy officer has found her for a second time and tells Zane as much. Goliard sends another group of drones to remove the exterior plating from the hot prospect and recognizes Jariel due to internal information from the crucible based on Chantique's interest. Zane, brave doofus that he is, stands to fight the drones and cuts down a few, but Jariel freezes up, no doubt reliving the trauma of being a child slave, and is snagged by a sky reaper. Carrick grabs hold of the drone and frees Jariel after wrangling it, but a new trio of drones are incoming now. Thankfully for the duo, Roland flies by on his jetpack and destroys the drones before allowing Zane and Jariel to grab on and fly back to the hot prospect. Inside, all 80 of the slaves have been retrieved thanks to some quick thinking, but Griff is furious. It's not that he wants to see people enslaved. He's just selfish and greedy and doesn't want to try and con people who can fight back. Besides, they can't enter hyperspace with the drilling gates, so they are sitting ducks for the gladiator as the much larger ship maneuvers its guns into position to fire. The hot prospect disengages the comet and changes position to get its gun in position. But this isn't like the Willowall. It's really just a gym miner with one very mediocre gun. The crew needs something else to use on the offense or they're going to be dead or enslaved very soon. Lucky for them that the hot prospect's main centrifuge was already engaged, which powered up the big frontal drill, which allowed them to shoot harpoon drill cables into the gladiator's hull, causing mass decompression in the ship. That wasn't all, though. Roland dumps drums of xenoboric acid from the hot prospect to the gladiator, causing massive explosions and hull corrosion. Jeriel used a hose of the stuff to shoot down any Sky Reaper drones that came too close to the ship's opening. The acid drums had been on the ship since Slisk bought it, a byproduct of gem mining and refinery, no doubt. 
Knowing that the gladiator uh, won't stop chasing them now, the crew has one more trick in store for the Crucible Enforcers. Using the harpoon drill cables, Slisk winched the hot prospect toward the much larger ship and released the crane arm and hook directly into the gladiator's bridge. The crane stunt destroyed the gladiator's viewing glass, causing causing the decompression shield to engage and blind the bridge. It also dislodged the hot prospect. Galliard has had enough and, blinded or not, releases all remaining drones to take the hot prospect apart with their lasers. The gang can't jump to hyperspace with the drill still operational and it takes too long to stop, and they're sitting ducks with the hot prospect's lone cannon out of position too, but Zane has a plan. The drill is connected to the main centrifuge that spins continuously, not only providing power to much of the ship, but also its artificial gravity. Carrick, Roland, and two of the liberated Sungrazer slaves grab a large girder and jam it into the gears, stopping the centrifuge's motion completely and throwing the hot prospect into an unchecked, continuous spin. Everything not nailed down floats, but with the entire ship spinning, Jariel is easily able to get off four or five shots from the lone forward cannon on the much larger gladiator. Finally, free of complications and small problems, the hot prospect made the jump to hyperspace, with the ship's artificial gravity disengaged and in an uncontrolled free spin in the vacuum of space and in the middle of an asteroid field with all these strange gravitational anomalies. Free of their pursuers, Zane and Jariel help the slave find passage to a, at a transit hub. Due to, well, everything that's happened, Jariel comes clean to Griff and Roland about her past with the Crucible, and they agree to help her take the group down. Zane assumes they'll have the element of surprise, though Griff does say they'll need far more sophisticated plans to beat such an organized and ruthless group. Zane really should learn what happens when you assume. Not so brief aside, uh, let's quickly address three plot devices that have become uh, big or semi-big questions among Star Wars fans recently, and are also touched on in the Hot Prospect's fight with the Gladiator. First, just like the Hot Prospect, all large ships in Star Wars have artificial gravity generators as a matter of course. The vacuum of of space in their galaxy still has the same basic physical properties as ours does, so without artificial gravity, everything and everyone would float. I know I'm saying that about a place that has a realm called hyperspace, but the regular, normal vacuum of space still has the same physics. In many ships, pressure could be reestablished, allowing for gravity to exist in some areas of the ship and not in others. It's only something that comes up when the plot calls for it, and that's why it's rarely addressed. Second, it is very common for ships to drop bombs or explosive containers to ships below. Sometimes they use the lack of gravity to let the canisters fall, like Roland did above, and the Empire did in the Empire. Or, or, I'm sorry, and yeah, and the Empire did in the Empire Strikes Back when searching asteroids for the Millennium Falcon. Other times they use magnetized bombs that are attracted to large metallic objects, like say ships, uh, during freefall. Third, ships in Star Wars can enter and exit hyperspace almost at whim, and the physics of hyperspace have always been loose, almost to the point of nonsense. While normal hyperspace ingress and egress typically requires a ship to be free of a gravity well, such risk can be taken by dis- can be taken by disengaging safety features and hoping you beat the odds, like the hot prospect out of an asteroid field or the rebels on Jeddah and Rogue One. Additionally, hyperspace jumps can be made while artificial gravity is disengaged and while the ship is in a continuous 
uncontrolled free spin in the vacuum of space. So just remember, no one cares about the incredibly loose physics and sci-fi mumbo jumbo of the Star Wars galaxy until it becomes a plot point of a Star Wars story they don't like. Later, in an unknown location, Dace Goliard is brought in chains before Chantique and Dar and sorry, and Bar Injar, the Magister Protector of the Crucible. Chantique wants to kill Dace, but Barinjar pulls rank and spares the human's life. Barinjar claims that Goliard has first-hand knowledge of Jariel and her compatriots, meaning that he's part of a security matter for the Crucible. Shantik eventually relents to Barinjar as the two prepare a trap for the crew of the Hot Prospect, and, unfortunately for Jariel and her friends, the Crucible knows plenty about all of them. Far across the galaxy, back in Coruscant, in a heavily guarded room in a Republic medical facility, the war criminal Dr. Demigol rouses from the self-induced coma he had been in since the events on Flashpoint Station during the Flashpoint arc. The nurse attending him immediately alerted the defense minister that Demigol was both alive and awake, setting the stage for the war crimes tribunal against Demigol with a very unhinged Malik as a key witness. Our next story, Knights of the Old Republic comic, Destroyer. It was written by John Jackson Miller. It's a two-issue arc released in 2009. This arc solely, a uh, little meta information here, this arc solely exists for Zane to meet Chantique so that she can sow doubt about Jariel and split the group up before the final arc. It, reg- it relies on two very, very bad plans to get Zane and Chantique together and a goofy premise to establish the Crucible's history. It's a mess and we're going to keep it short so we can get to the final arc of the comic Demon uh, quicker and that'll probably be next episode. Uh Zane, Jrael, Chantique, Griff, Roland, Desculliard, Baranjar, and Shel Jelavan are our old characters. Our new characters. Uh, you think they would stop adding new characters by issue 45, but you'd be mistaken. Uh, our first is Snout, a Kamasi slave who fights in the pits for the Crucible. Kamasi are bipedal humanoids covered in fur and are known to be peaceful by nature. The Kamasi species also holds a rare ability wherein some of their members can retain and pass down a collective epigenetic memory of all the jolting and horrifying life events suffered by other Kamasi around them or who have contributed to the memory. Only certain Kamasi can receive and pass on this collective memory called a Memni, and it can usually only be passed between family members or individuals who have suffered horrible trauma together. The memories are so vivid and don't fade over. The memories are very vivid and don't fade over time. So possessing the mem- the memni is mostly a curse, but sharing them with other Kamasi is said to ease the pain. Snout holds the memni, and the Crucible won't let him die until it is passed on. Uh, the second is a mysterious Zeltron teacher. Uh, this person runs an academy on the snowy, as yet unnamed world that Jarile flashback to in the last arc, and uh, they also deal with the Crucible to buy and sell child slaves. Uh, we don't visit any um, old locations, new locations. We have one unknown that appears to be the same snowy world that Jarile flashback to last arc, and then we also visit Volgax. Located in the core worlds, the planet was the home to an ancient and likely long-forgotten civilization. The Crucible rebuilt and reused that civilization's old buildings and facilities as slave barracks and fighting pens. 
and our timeline 3963 BBY with two flashbacks, both to earlier unknown times in Champ in Chantique's life and one epigenetic memory showing thousands of years of the history of the Kamasi species. So the basic premise is this. Zane and Jariel didn't learn the lessons of Ula Keldroma and decided the best way to get close to the Crucible is for Carrick to infiltrate them and take them down from the inside. Did they take time to do more recon on the group or develop a strategy in case Zane is compromised? Absolutely not. As we said, it's a bad plan. Zane poses as a stranded Republic pilot named Karth Camlin. His ship was picked up by Darius Goliard on one of his Rage and Carrick was dropped off at the fighting pits on Vol on Volgax in the Core Worlds. Carrick thinks he has the group fooled, but just like Ulik Keldroma, they saw through his ruse from the jump. In addition to Goliard recognizing the type of ship they used to strand Zane as Old Republic salvage, the Crucible has extensive files on all of Jariel's friends, including their pictures. On Volgax, Zane is forced to fight other slaves against his will, but he's not made to kill yet. Shantique, overseeing the events from a watchtower, then thinks back on her child and how she first joined the Crucible. Flashback more than 20 years to a snowy world and the school where a young Dace Goliard is speaking to the mysterious Zeltron teacher about the next delivery of slave children. Goliard confirms that they will arrive on time, but the Crucible also requires its payment. For whatever reason, one student from the school is sufficient payment for multiple shipments of child slaves. The Zeltron teacher says the child is undisciplined, reckless, and doesn't fit in with the program. Outside, the child, a Zeltron girl, is fighting a group of Arcanian offshoot children, but she is much bigger and much stronger than they are. Sadly, she's now also the property of the Crucible. If only that were the most fucked up part of Shantique's life. The next part of Shantique's delightfully circuitous plan for Zane involves using his empathy against him. Thus, Carrick is made to fight a Kamasi named Snout, who has been fighting for his life in the Crucible Slave Pits so long he can't remember when he started. The Kamasi is weary and half-crazed from holding the Memni for so long without being able to share it with anyone else. Carrick still doesn't want to fight, and so attempts to reach out to Snout through the Force, causing the Kamasi to realize that the Memni can be transferred to Force users. Snout sees his chance for relief and shares the memory with Zane. In an instant, Zane experience, experiences and vividly remembers thousands of years of Kamasi death and suffering at the hands of the Crucible, a machine of endless pain and cruelty that subsists on needless death, not even for the pursuit of profit, but simply because it can. An infinitely repeating machine that lurks just under the surface of most big businesses in the galaxy and that still exists because governments turn a blind eye to the lives of the powerless. Zane is in shock and suffering from a rapid onset PTSD and his no good, terrible, very bad day is still going. It's like they weaponized to the giver. <laughs> Able to think clearly after yeah, sharing. They did. That. I, yeah, they yeah. did. I didn't even think about that. Wow. <laughs> what if the giver but an attack? Yeah. Uh, huh. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. No, I didn't even, th- I didn't even put that together. Yeah. That's, yeah. Nice. That that one just went right over my head, and now I just see that I completely missed it. Yeah. I mean, if you describe it perfectly, it feels the same. Yeah, Um, no, you're you're right, yeah. So able to think clearly after sharing the memory, Snout begins to place the memories chronologically and finds that Kamasi have been part of the Crucible for its entire existence. 
They were some of the first to be enslaved after the crucible was founded by a Sith Lord named Yeldus, who lived even before the Golden Age of the Sith in Naga Sadao. Yeldus wanted to build an army of the best warriors in the galaxy, honed by years of fighting for their lives in slave pens. So he created the crucible long before 5000 BBY. He spent years enslaving beings and forcing them to fight, and by the time of his death, the Crucible was a massive galaxy-spanning organization. After Yeldus's death, the Crucible should have ceased operation since they need, they need no armies, but the Byzantine machine was already working, already turning out a profit, if not an army. And after, it became the shittiest perpetual motion machine existing for thousands of years, destroying the lives of billions in an endless cycle of pointless violence and death. The profit is nice and all, but the real point is the fucking cruelty. Zane experiences all of this in the moment and now holds the Memni too, but he can barely stand. This is how Shantique will break Zane. She will inflict so much pain and make Carrick hurt so much that he's emotionally battered enough to believe her lies about Jarel, the person who's become closest to him in the galaxy over the past year. Yeah, it... Uh... It'd be a shame if any of this connected to uh, to real life events, huh? Yeah, Star Wars taken over by SJWs, and only since Disney. Even though this is from two thousand nine. While it did facilitate the Mimni transfer in the first place, Zane's connection to the Force seems to have made it even worse. Because not only can he experience the vivid memories, he can feel disturbances in the Force from each one too. Mentally, it's a lot. Completely irrelevant side note, that was the first recorded occurrence of Mimni transfer outside the Kamasi species. Wow. Species. The Kamasi rarely, possibly never, produce Force-sensitive offspring, so no one tried using the Force as a conduit. Now that he's been physically beaten and tortured, it's time for Shantique to emotionally destroy Zane's connection to Jirael. He's mentally fragile at best, and Shantique uses her Zeltron pheromones to make Carrick even more malleable to her deceit. Shantique spins a web of truth mixed with just enough lies to create doubt in Zane's emotionally wrecked mind. Shantique says that Jariel's name, given to her by the kid she trained, means destroyer in the Crucible's language, and that Jariel enjoyed working as a slaver before fleeing. Shantique also says that Jariel literally stabbed her in the back for the trainer job. It wasn't a real fight. She then tells Zane that she was sold into sex slavery as a washout, not to fight or train, but eventually found a strength or spark inside and used that to kill all her owners and run free. So how did Shantique end up leading the Crucible if she was free, you ask? Well, she's got some serious issues generally and a real bad hang-up with Jariel specifically. Shantique blamed everything on Jariel and went on a twisted quest for revenge. Instead of making a fresh start, Shantique got herself caught by the Crucible on purpose so that she could kill Jariel and fight to the top of the organization. She was heartbroken to find that Jariel had already fled by the time she returned, so Shantique did the org takeover part. The Zeltron says that she rounded up every student from the academy she was sold from as a child and left them somewhere ironic. They were friends of Jariel, and Shantique gets joy from this little irony. We also found that Dace Gallard was the crucible agent who brought in both Shantique and Jariel, and that the mysterious Zeltron teacher who sold Shantique to the crucible was actually her father. Yeah, 
See? It's really fucked up. Elsewhere in deep space, the crew of the Hot Prospect are concerned that Zane's tracker stopped responding and they haven't heard any word from him. Griff knew that this was a bad idea, but Dryel remembers that Z- remembers Zane saying that he had resources and friends and uses a pre-programmed comm link inside LB to contact Shell Jellivan. Shell then uses some of Zane's shadowy contacts to find out where the Crucible might be stationed. Zane and Jarrell's plan was so bad, the Crucible killed Carrick's tracking beacon before he was even taken to their base. On Volgax, uh, Chantique thinks she's gotten the better of Zane, but he has a moment of clarity and recognizes that she's been using the Force, in addition to the Zeltron pheromones, to manipulate and persuade him. Once Zane mentions her use of the Force, Chantique ends the private meeting and has her bodyguards throw him back in the fighting pits with Snout. Uh, Baranjar announces that it will be a death match and both fighters are given long knives. Uh, Zane protests, but protects himself from a now clear-minded snout. The Kamasi realized that the Crucible kept him alive solely for the Memni and that they would now let him die. However, Snout also knew that Zane wouldn't willingly give him a quick death, so he grabbed the Jedi's arm, pulling it close, and fell on Carrick's knife. Zane is horrified. Another act of another senseless act of violence thrown on top of experiencing the Memni and Shantique's manipulations causes Carrick to break down sobbing. On that note, knowing their base is compromised, Shantique orders the Crucible to abandon the world for a new home. By the time Jariel arrives, all that's left on Volgath is a torrential downpour and Zane sitting sadly in it. Yep. Chantique's entire plan that involved catching, manipulating, hurting, and emotionally destroying Zane was all that she could leave him back with Jarrell. She didn't kill him or maim him or really impede him in any way. She just told him a bunch of half-truths so the group could split up before their final arc. Jarrell rushes out to meet Zane and is positively giddy to see him, but Carrick lashes out. On the one hand, it's not really ever acceptable to lash out at your friends or other people. On the other, we're all human or alien and Zane's had a pretty rough couple of days so let him blow off steam he reads Jariel the riot act accusing her of everything Shantique said that she enjoyed working for the crucible that she stabbed Shantique in the back and sent her to a life of misery on purpose that her tattoos and name mean destroyer etc etc Jariel calmly lets Zane get it all out and then quiet then quietly furious that he would believe any of these lies tearfully turns and walks back to the hot prospect with her back turned, she says only that the name Jariel was given to her by the kids she trained and that it means protector in the Crucible's language. No matter how understandable it may be, Zane done fucked up. And that is where we will leave the story for today. Thank you all for listening to A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we will conclude the Knights of the Old Republic comics by discussing the final main series arc, Demon, and the short follow-up arc, war. You know what comes after that, right? Please rate, comment, and subscribe to People's History of the Old Republic on Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for the five-star ratings on iTunes. Ratings and comments help the show, and we really appreciate them. Follow us on Twitter at Photorpod or email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments, and we will answer them on the show. I'm AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. Thank you again. May the force be with you.